Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm your host, CEO Dan Mary Ashen. Thank you for spending time with us. My guest today is Ben Katcher, MacArthur Grant-winning cartoonist and author of the new book, The Dairy Restaurant. In his book, Ben tells the history and cultural significance of dairy restaurants, which were largely Jewish-owned establishments that served only dairy dishes and no meat. Though dairy restaurants have mostly closed the doors, Ben takes a deep dive into their history and explores what they meant to him growing up in New York City. Ben is best known for his critically acclaimed comic strip, Julius Knippel, real estate photographer, that he wrote and illustrated for the Forward newspaper. He was also the first cartoonist to receive a MacArthur Fellowship and currently teaches at Parsons School of Design, the new school in New York City. In our conversation today, I'll be speaking with Ben about his book, and what inspired him to write about the history of the dairy restaurant, a place that used to be such an integral part of the Jewish community in New York City and other places, especially in New York's Lower East Side. We'll also talk about the extent of Ben's research, why dairy restaurants were so important at their peak, and how dairy restaurants have impacted modern Jewish food experiences. Ben, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Great to be great to be at home. <laughs> I'm not there. I'm not anywhere. I'm home. Well, we're at home as well, um, and we're using our time, I hope, uh, productively. We certainly will be in the next half hour or so. Before we talk about the dairy restaurant, at the dairy restaurant, and about the book, uh, I'd like to talk a little about you. In a uh, an interview you did with uh, Magenta, the design website, you you talked about your youth about drawing comic strips very early, how you took a course in art at the Brooklyn Museum, which greatly influenced uh, your um, career, uh, and also about your father, who was an immigrant from Poland who um, encouraged you in, in your work. Tell us about that. Uh, I think he um, grew up in uh, you know, interwar uh, Warsaw. Uh, I mean, he left as a young man. But um, he always wanted to study the violin as a young man. And his family just couldn't afford that. He was apprenticed very young as a, to be a tailor. <clears throat> and uh, I think when, you know, I appeared on the scene, he was uh, really happy to be able to afford to uh, you know, subsidize and help me do what I wanted to do in the arts. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think, what you're referring to. Well, he recognized something because he didn't, as you point out, <clears throat> he didn't push you into uh, to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, to be uh, yeah, no, uh, he, something, that you, something that you didn't want to be. Yeah, no, it's one of, one of the themes that comes up in, through all this research is that this, um, his generation and a lot of the, this um, first generation of small restaurant owners and New York uh, did not want their children to go into their business only because it was very difficult work. I mean, these were hands-on uh, restaurateurs, you know, the wife in the kitchen, the husband in the front of the room, or vice versa. I mean, that's one reason they didn't go on past that first generation. Most of the, the children of most of these people went into various professions. And, uh, you know, my, my father had a, 
I don't know where he thought art was, whether he thought that was a business at all. Probably not. I think he understood that was something usually subsidized by other activities. As a child, um, he didn't, um, he saw that as a, a kind of worthwhile thing to help me do. I mean, his, his, he was a tailor and then a chick, had a chicken farm and hotel. And then uh, later in his life, he ended up as a small uh, real estate business in, New, in Brooklyn. So I, I don't think, and those were not um, areas I was interested in. And so, uh, yeah, I think he understood the value of studying drawing or I don't know what he made of comics. You know, it would seem to him like an American thing that he was not terribly familiar with as a form. Well, let's talk about New York City. Uh, you, you grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, New York is um, the venue for much of your work. And there clearly is a very strong attachment for New York City in your work. The New York City, perhaps, of uh, some decades before you were born, and maybe even into the period where you became a, a young man uh, in New York. But not only in the dairy restaurant that you feature in, in this book, but also in the architecture. Uh, it seems you have a great interest in that. In, in all of your work, the architecture of neighborhoods like the Lower East Side uh, with these uh, four and five-story buildings where there were shops on the main floor. Tell us about why New York is so important to you. Well, it's where I grew up and I, I've lived um, most of my life. So uh, I, I, I can't, um, I, and I didn't leave. I didn't come there. A lot of people arrive in New York from other parts of the world. I was born there and um, started to understand uh, what it meant to uh, live in a city of that age. I mean, something you mentioned in the introduction, this a whole idea of Jewish community. Another thing my research showed me is how different Jews are. I mean, they all have their own ideas of what it even means to be a Jew much less being part of any um, organizational Jewish life. And that's you know, something I had not much to do with growing up. I mean, I was kind of, English was my, my main language. I, I mean, I, I, I didn't um, even begin to read much in Yiddish until much later. These restaurants, especially these early ones in New York, were very much um, a political matter. You could go to a cafe or a small restaurant that catered to your particular political ideology, you know, vegeta Tolstoyan vegetarians, socialist cafes, anarchist cafes. And uh, I think as a last resort, when people had to eat, they had to kind of put some of those ideas aside and eat wherever they could afford to eat or whatever was open. So a lot of these more successful and larger um, dairy restaurants, everybody ended up eating there. That's also something that cultural history reveals. Well, we've gotten into now into the restaurants, but before we talk about the dairy restaurant, I, I, I have to say that your book is about dairy restaurants, but before you get to the dairy restaurants, you have a, uh, a brief history of eating. You have um, a biblical eating habits uh, you talk about Abraham's tent, for example, uh, Jewish dietary laws and preferences. Then there's a history of restaurants. You also have a history of dairy. 
there's even instructions on how to milk a cow yeah. um, well. in order to to set the stage uh, for uh, the discussion about the restaurants. And I, I, it's probably good to, because I mentioned it in the, in the introduction as well, a dairy restaurant was not strictly dairy because you have many menus. And on these menus, I see that they serve fish. So they weren't really vegetarian restaurants. No. They were really everything other than meat. Uh, right. would, that, would that be a correct? Yeah, fish can be eaten uh, in, in Jewish dietary law. Fish can be eaten with uh, dairy products, right? But the reason I, I go back to the history is because Jews lived in this world, and this is all very tied in to the larger world they lived in. And um, I just wanted to explain how they participated in that larger world. I mean, the idea of a uh, dairy or a restaurant couldn't exist without the French invention of the restaurant. That's not something that existed through all time. There were eating places, taverns, other kinds of um, eating establishments, uh, semi-open to the public, but they were not the restaurant. The idea of a menu where everyone in the place was eating the food of their choice. Uh, the earlier setup would be the you know the plate of the day. Everybody would be eating the same thing. So, I mean, just on that level, the dairy restaurant is part of this larger world history. And um, the other thing is, I explain that I took I, I described this kind of personality, the milchdika personality, the dairy personality is this um, kind of person who has um, one foot out of this world and they get involved in very deep rumination, maybe out of control rumination. That was kind of my approach to the book in that way. It's a very personal approach to writing about something, you know, that everything is interconnected. I and, mean, you know, where do you stop? Where do you stop drawing those interconnections? And so well, you've it, got, it leads to all those things you mentioned. You have an exhaustive listing, and listing does not really, the word does not do what you've done here, credit, because you not only have um, listing of the restaurants, uh, but there are vignettes about dozens of restaurants. The owners, when they got uh, started, when they began, how long, some of these restaurants didn't last very long, uh, based no. on what you said, and some of them lasted uh, many years, and uh, not only in the Lower East Side, but in, in Manhattan. You also mentioned later on in the book about Baltimore and Chicago, Miami, Los Angeles. But New York really was the, the, the locus um, for so much of this. Uh, you, have, you have menus and you have uh, vin little vignettes also that came from newspaper clippings. Tell us about this immense research work that you did, because if you go to the Lower East Side today, for example, we know, and, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit later about the garden cafeteria, so we'll, we'll leave that for a moment because I have a, a small connection uh, to that personal uh, connection. Um, but these are just addresses today. So you would have had to have done this immense research operation. Tell us about that. Well, I um, back in the 80s, I had this, um, my interest in... Um, Jewish food uh, began, and I, I started to get in touch with some of the people who are interviewed in this book. They were still around. You know, the, the, the 
the research, it's not a, a subject a lot was written about because before the uh, late 20th century, um, these ideas of uh, interviewing or documenting working class occupations, like these small restaurants, that just wasn't a popular thing. Sort of the upper classes were more written about. So a lot of this got lost, and a lot of it only survives in um, kind of oblique mentions and spread throughout all of uh, recorded history. So uh, ads in Yiddish newspapers, um, you know, little uh, congratulatory ads in uh, Jewish organizational um, annuals, things like that, a matchbook labels that uh, cover paper matchbooks that would come up on eBay. You know, uh, the, the digitization of all of this information helped. A lot of this is now accessible. It would have been really difficult to do a, a book like this before the, um, the internet and all of the genealogical research you can do today. Well, it's, it's amazing, just the number of, of menus, for example. I happen to be probably one of the, the few folks left, at least of, of our generation, that happens to like Schav. Mm-hmm. So I see at Steinberg's, I'm looking at their menu, uh, you, um, you could buy a, uh, a bowl of cold Schav with uh, sour cream for 25 cents. I don't know what year that was, but uh, clearly that was a long time ago. Kasha. Uh, then we've got uh, Rappaport's here. I'm looking at uh, stuffed peppers and uh, uh, kasha varnishkis, etc. Uh, this, uh, these were not small menus. These were not limited menus. There were there's an amazing yeah. amount of, of of dishes, and that must that must have meant that if a restaurant was successful, that there were a lot of folks coming in to eat. I mean, this was a, a quite a, an offering uh, to come in off the street and have this kind of a bounty, if you will, on the menu. Um, yeah. So the menus, I guess, tell you a little, a little about not only eating habits, but also about the, the, the business of, of dairy restaurants. Yeah. The, the menus, at a large part, overlap with American luncheonette menus and American restaurant menus. I'd say only about sometimes 20 or 30% with dishes that could be traced to um, Eastern Europe. Otherwise... Lots of uh, other dishes, salads, tuna fish sandwiches, things we think of as American uh, lunch uh, dishes show up on these menus. But that, that limitation of not being able to have you know, a hamburger, if that's what you felt like eating, set these restaurants aside and kind of limited their clientele. Because you could also have the vegetarian dairy dishes in... Um, in an American uh, luncheonette, too, some of these dishes made that, that move over. And then there's that whole, the whole thing you mentioned of the, uh, the kind of American kosher-style restaurant that incorporated blintzes and pot roast and, you know, ham, roast ham, and completely, uh, these were just dishes from world cuisine that they would serve. So um, the dairy restaurant, it really depended on having a sizable clientele that was familiar with these dishes, these Eastern European dairy dishes, and wanted to eat them. And once that 
population moved or if it wasn't large enough, like in a lot of other cities in America, other than New York, there would only be one, if that, one or two dairy restaurants. Well, you cover uh, some of the, the names that I recognize. I mean, I, I do remember Ratner's, of course. I remember the onion rolls uh, at Ratner's. But you mentioned the, the Steinberg's uh, and the famous. So I want to talk about the famous. Uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer, um, you, you mentioned there are a number of other luminaries who used to eat uh, at, at these places or would stop by or would campaign. Some, some politicians would come down. It was good campaigning if you came into some of these restaurants. Um, but let's talk a little about the famous and, and Isaac Bashevis Singer, uh, the great author. And he was a regular uh, at the famous. Yeah, he, um, he became a kind of militant vegetarian later in his life. I think he was 65 when that happened. And that there is a big overlap between vegetarianism and dairy restaurants. There was even a Yiddish vegetarian movement. So he was part of that overlap. I mean, when the, the famous clothes, he just moved, went to a Greek coffee shop and ordered a vegetarian lunch. So he didn't um, specifically have to go to a, a Jewish dairy restaurant, and he didn't. Yeah, he lived well, he in the was, neighborhood. It was a neighborhood where he lived, you know. Uh, but he was, but clearly different. it was um, not just comfort food, but he was comfortable with uh, the, the setting. It yeah, seemed. he also comes up, he also was a regular at the dairy um, garden on East Broadway, which was up the block from the forwards uh, building. Uh, and it was where a lot of uh, people, journalists and people who wrote for that paper would have their... Yeah, I want, to talk about the, I want to talk about the garden cafeteria. It was. It was on the corner, I do remember, of that block. And that block was what was left of, if we could call it, the Jewish or Yiddish Fleet Street. Yeah. Uh, because I think the um, garden was at 165 and then the forward building. And then to the left of the forward building was were the offices of Der Tog Morgen Journal, uh, which was the, the last competitor uh, to the, the forwards. And you talk about the, the garden and the, um, the card that you would get in, which was punched uh, with the uh, cost of the particular dish that you were, that you were uh, ordering. Um, was the garden at its, at its height? And, and in your drawings, I mean, I imagine you, you really had to conjure up what, what these folks looked like as you were making these, these drawings to illustrate the book. Um, but uh, tell us what it might have been like if you walked into the garden in the, you know, at the height of, of, its, uh, of its popularity. Uh, who would be there in addition to Besheva Singer? Who, might, who else might be there? Uh, neighborhood people. And as the, the demographic of the neighborhood changed, that would change too. I, I went there a lot in the 70s. Um, I went to meetings at the um, Educational Alliance every Friday night. There was an organization called the, the Alliance of Figurative Painters. And so there was just a convenient place to have dinner before those meetings. So there were a lot of painters there who were, you know, before they went, walked over to the Educational Alliance. But it was a busy cafeteria, black Puerto Rican people, anyone who lived in the neighborhood went there. I think um, it had kind of moved beyond being a, a specifically 
Jewish restaurant. It was just a really popular neighborhood cafeteria. You know, when I was um, in, in college, uh, I was raised in New Hampshire, but um, I would uh, go to New York on vacations, and uh, my father was a subscriber to Der Tug Morgan Journal. So occasionally I would go down uh, to the Lower East Side, this is now in the early 70s, to go down and just take a look and kind of imagine what it might have been like. And there wasn't much left on the block. You're right. It was the Educational Alliance. It was the Der Tug Morgan Journal. It was the Forberts and the Garden Cafeteria. And that was a kind of a, an intact block of what it might have looked like decades before. And uh, I would stop in uh, at the garden just to kind of um, breathe in some of that of some of that uh, atmosphere, but there really wasn't much left on the scene in terms of these these kinds of uh, restaurants. Um, let's talk about their demise. What happened? Well, it's a combination of well, as I mentioned, these people didn't encourage their children to go into the restaurant business, and the ones who did would not have gone into a Jewish dairy. They would have gone into a a more kind of upscale American restaurant business. That's one factor. The ob another big factor is the demise of a, a lot of Jews during the war, uh, the Holocaust. A lot of these, the people who, who in, invented that cuisine were gone. And um, assimilation, people, you know, seeing that as a very narrow part of world cuisine. There's so many other things you could eat. That's another factor. Um, and I mean, uh, apparently a lot of um, Ashkenazi Jews have a, a lactose intolerance. So uh, although the food in these places was mainly cheese, sour cream, uh, dairy dishes with lower uh, lactose uh, content. So I mean, that's a small factor because that always, people put up with whatever they, indigestion they suffered from eating all of, all kinds of Jewish uh, food. So, well, there, uh, there were dozens and dozens of these places. So they were all, they were all eating, whether they were lactose intolerant or not, they, yeah. they, they found it, they found it to be good. But let me ask you about the restaurants influencing um, modern cuisine, Jewish and non-Jewish, is there, I mean, today we have vegetarian restaurants. Yeah. Was it yeah. more about <clears throat> the atmosphere <clears throat> or was it about uh, the food? In other words, you can go into a vegetarian restaurant today, but it's not quite the same as having gone into the, the garden or no. the famous um, uh, in the 1940s. Right. So yeah. it, is there a connection today? Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing you mentioned in the introduction, it's not quite accurate. There are lots of Jewish dairy restaurants today, but they'd be labeled as uh, kosher pizzerias or other kinds of um, the whole realm of upscale dairy restaurants that exist in Jewish neighborhoods today. So that still exists. The kind of dairy restaurant I encountered. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s, the tail end of this Eastern European cuisine, as opposed to a more Mediterranean-facing or um, a later Israeli-facing cuisine, um, that's what's disappeared. And what's disappeared 
also is the, the whole idea of a Jewish working class restaurant. Again, that still exists if you go to a Hasidic neighborhood. There is still a, these kind of working class small restaurants. But um, yeah, that's what I, I kind of miss, the aesthetic of the working class uh, Jew in New York. And that's tied to uh, economics and other issues. But uh, that's really what's vanished. Not anybody can open up a restaurant today and make these, even exactly replicate this menu. But chances are it's not going to be part of that first generation Jewish working class. And why Jews left the working class, it seems. You know, to one history, that seems inevitable and a positive thing. Uh, but from an aesthetic point of view, it's not at all. It's ter- I mean, we have Starbucks is owned by a, someone of Jewish descent. It's the most boring kind of the death of any kind of cafe culture. It's a terrible invention, in my opinion. So uh, well, I sense a, a certain wistfulness here, and I, I think I can understand it. I know that my, uh, my father, when we would visit Brooklyn, uh, would take me to uh, Dubrow's, which was not uh, precisely a dairy restaurant. Mm. It was a Jewish cafeteria, and it was at um, East, 6th, East 16th Street and Kings Highway. Uh, and that was a, that was a big deal uh, to be able to, um, to go with him to that. So I, I caught a little bit of that. But I sense in your, in your writing and in your drawing um, a wistfulness for this time. Was that a, a good characterization? Uh, yeah, well, uh, wistful, I mean, the aesthetics of these places that didn't have unlimited resources to spend on decor, I mean, the concentration was on the, the quality of the food. And there was a complete um, surrounding working class culture. That's what I, I, I don't say I, w- I want to replicate it because I don't know that that's possible, but the the aesthetics of it, I think that can be thought about, like, you know, um, can we have individual uniquely run restaurants, or does the world have to be overrun by chain restaurants? And uh, yeah, I don't think that's, that's just a a strong feeling I have. Well, I think um, I read, I think at the end of uh, perhaps the review of your book in the New York Times, it said that, you were at B&H, which is a dairy restaurant on, on 2nd Avenue, and um, you met your wife as a result of um, sitting next to her. I think uh, she asked you what you were eating, or you asked her. I think it was gefilte fish on, on yeah, somebody's she asked me. plate. Yeah, and it, um, I have some, not, a, not a similar story, but a connection. I, I was married, actually, in Tel Aviv. Uh, many, many years ago. And on the, the day of our wedding, you know, my wife and, and her, my wife-to-be and her family were getting ready uh, for uh, the preparations for the wedding. And I had the, the morning free, the day free. And so I went to a little restaurant at the lower end of Allenby Street uh, called Strauss, not connected to Strauss of the, the big dairy in Israel, but this was a family Strauss. Mm. And I remember having stuffed peppers uh, that day, vegetarian stuffed peppers. Uh, so um, that also uh, stayed with me when I think about that particular time uh, and uh, the story about uh, you were sitting in B&H 
um, and meeting your wife that way, I think, was a, a fitting way to sum up uh, your attachment to the dairy restaurant. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, one of these strange coincidences. But I mean, I like them for other reasons, too. <laughs> I know. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you do. Ben, you make a reference in the book uh, to uh, dairy restaurants uh, outside New York. And one of the notes that you make is that there uh, was a meeting of uh, Benebrith in Denver in 1908 held at the Home Dairy Restaurant. It was uh, an event to uh, celebrate what they called Benebrith Day, which was something that uh, Benebrith did in various cities around the country. Um, tell us about why they may have gone to that restaurant, that particular restaurant. Well, Part of this history of dairy restaurants uh, led me to discover that there was a, a very uh, widespread um, phenomenon in America in the uh, late 1800s called the Dairy Lunch. And there were hundreds of these restaurants all over the country, and they served the, the big claim to attract people was that they had fresh milk and a, they would have a small um, dairy menu, things like, um, you know, toast and milk toast, uh, pancakes, uh, non-meat things, but they also would have a full meat menu. And the home dairy, it was a, it was a dairy uh, company. They, had all of these restaurants around the country. And, you know, it was common for um, Jews, especially in cities where there wasn't a specifically Jewish restaurant, to hold um, events at uh, places that would accommodate them, whether with a special menu for that night or not, uh, depending on how uh, strictly they wanted to observe. Uh, these dietary laws. But yeah, but that's, um, you know, the question of whether these American dairy uh, restaurants and dairy lunchrooms, what the influence on Jewish uh, dairy restaurants is something I go into in the book. Uh, so that's, that's that case. Uh, that's a case of that. Ben, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about uh, your book. The book is The Dairy Restaurant, published by Shockin Next Book. It's available online wherever you purchase books. Well, if you like what you've heard so far, make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, benebrith.org, to learn about our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. For my guest, Ben Katcher, I'm your host, Dan Mariash. We'll talk to you next time. Stay safe, everyone.